Well, good morning. It's always a privilege to have the opportunity to speak uh, to the church on a Sunday morning. And uh, when, I, when I came in this morning, one of the band members said, you know, Jerry, you finally have the chance to preach to the choir. It's just mu music, musicians, right? But it's nice to have so many uh, joining us this morning online. Uh, we thank God for the technology and for all of the staff that came in this morning to make this possible for us as a church. It's a very unique situation that we as a church and as a country uh, find ourselves in as the health experts and private government agencies, public agencies work together to try to overcome this uh, coronavirus that's sweeping the globe. When Pastor Greg asked me a couple of weeks ago if I would speak a bit about our family and how it applies to our current series, our lives were very different from where we find ourselves just a short time later. But today I'd like to take a look at how God put Esther into a very challenging situation to be used for his purposes. And then how this story has impacted uh, Elaine and I, both in an encouraging and also in a challenging way. And then some thoughts on how we can influence those around us towards Christ, even in these troubling times. For some people, difficulty actually becomes an avenue towards God. And as C.S. Lewis once said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pains. Pain is God's megaphone to awaken a deaf world. Let's pray for a moment before we begin. Our Father, we come to you this morning in union with our fellow believers across the country, seeking your divine protection and your healing hand as our country faces this difficult time. We know that there will be challenges ahead. Our prayer this morning is for your providence and our looking to you as the one who watches over us, that we would find peace and assurance in the days ahead, a peace that comforts us when we can comfort those who are around us. Use these challenging times, Lord, to awaken some, bring them to you, and we pray, Lord, that in all things that you would be glorified. Amen. And as Chris mentioned, let's remember that the church is not a building, that the church is all of us who are united in the name of Christ. And though we may be physically apart, let's make that extra effort to reach out to those in the community groups, friends, co-workers. In the days ahead, there will certainly be no, those who need our physical support, emotional support, and certainly for prayer. So let's be sure to reach out to keep those in uh, in touch with us and see how they're doing. So we are in the third week of the series, Becoming Salt and Light, where we're focusing on those small circle of acquaintances, those 8 to 15 people or so that God has sovereignly placed into our circle of relationships that we might be a witness to them. It's not an accident, coincidence. God has supernaturally and strategically placed us into this world and with these people. And he's planned and arranged this for a reason. He wants to demonstrate his love and his grace to them through us. We see God doing this throughout the Bible. 
putting people into circumstances where he's able to work through them to achieve his purposes. And this hit home for Elaine and I years ago in the Old Testament story of Esther. If you've never read Esther, it's nine chapters long, and I strongly encourage you to take the time at some point to read through it. And so I invite you now to open up to Esther in chapter four, and I will be reading uh, from the NIV. Let me set the context a little bit for the story. So at this time, the Jewish people uh, had been taken into exile and were now living under the Persian Empire. And the Persian king at the time was searching for a new queen. And so his aides arranged to have a beauty contest so that the king was able to select the, the, the woman of his choice to be his next queen. At the same time, Mordecai, a Jew, decided that he would enter his niece, Esther, into the contest. But he warned her not to tell anyone that that she herself was a Jew. And so, as you probably would imagine, Esther eventually was selected by the king and became the queen. And per her uncle's instructions, she never revealed that she was a Jew. Now, at the same time, the king had a nobleman by the name of Haman. And Haman had just been promoted to the highest rank of all of the king's aides. And the people of the city were expected to bow down and honor Haman as he passed by. Mordecai decided that he was not going to do this. And in his anger towards Mordecai, Haman went to the king and convinced him that the Jewish people were not good for his kingdom and that it was in the king's best interest to exterminate them all. So the king agreed, and a decree was issued to destroy, kill, and annihilate all of the Jews, young, old, women, and children. So we pick up the story in Esther, in chapter 4, and beginning in verse 5. And then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for the annihilation which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend his gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. 
For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your fa father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have not come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Excuse me. I won't tell you how this ends and potentially spoil it for those of you who may be interested in reading it, but you may be surprised to know that Esther is the only book in the Bible where God's name is never mentioned, not even once. Yet there are events in those pages that clearly show God providentially ordering events to bless the pe his people and to provide for them. And it's interesting, don't we actually see a subtle message even in that, that even when we're not aware that God is present or that he's working, he is sovereignly arranging the events of our lives. This story of Esther, as I said, had a major impact on Elaine and I some 20 years ago, as God used it to confirm some of the decisions that we were making in our lives. The current series that we're speaking to how we can be salt and light to those that are around us, we've come to learn this New Testament word, oikos, which is basically used to describe one's extended family, those, that circle of eight to 15 people that we routinely have personal relationships with. Our oikos is not a coincidence. God has supernaturally and strategically placed these people into our relational worlds so that he can work through us for his own divine purposes. This is what we saw in Esther. It was no coincidence that Esther found herself in a place where she would have direct access to the king. There was nothing special about Esther. In fact, if you remember, Mordecai even said to her, if she refused to speak to the king, that God would just bring deliverance from somewhere else. But God sovereignly directed the events in her life so that El Esther would find herself in the position as a queen so that she could be used to carry out God's work. When Pastor Greg asked if I would share this week about my and Elaine's oikos, but as I talk about our experiences, I want you to remember that each one of us has a story, and that all of our stories differ. But what I want you to ask, and what we must all ask ourselves is, are we being faithful to where God has asked us to, to serve him? Whether in public or in a solitary place, where no one but God himself may see, are we being faithful to what God is asking of us? In an interview, Mother Teresa once said, God has not called me to be successful. God has called me to be faithful. And that is what God asks of us, that we would be faithful in whatever situation he's placed us. So Elaine and I grew up in a 
pretty tough section in Providence. We were married when we were relatively young by uh, today's standards. Actually, we were relatively young even by those standards. We were pretty on fire for the Lord. Uh, we were involved in Catholic charismatic Bible studies. We were attending an evangelical Protestant church at the time. In time, we had two children, Jen and Josh. And we were living in a third floor apartment. I was working as a carpenter at the time, and so we decided that we would uh, buy a piece of land and build a house. And so we did, right here in Rehoboth. And after living our whole lives in Providence, uh, the country setting of Rehoboth seemed like God's country to us. We used to walk the property before we built, and we used to dream that one day God would use us by taking kids from the inner city and giving them the chance to come out into the country and spend weekends away from inner city life. We did end up building the house, and as it happens, life moves on. The talk about bringing kids from the inner city faded as life got busy, and we never forgot that yearning, though, that God had put in our hearts. So about the time that our son Josh was in Little League, Elaine became friendly with uh, another mother who also seemed to, who seemed to always have a small baby with her. It turns out that Pat was a foster parent for newborns. So Elaine and Pat became friends, and in time we found ourselves in a foster parent classes. I still remember filling out the questionnaire during the class that said, what's the reason that you want to be a foster parent? And one of the boxes said, for religious reasons. It wasn't, wasn't really the way that we would have worded it, but we checked the box for religious reasons. So we ended up doing foster parenting for 22 years. And during that time, we took in more than 30 children, four of whom we eventually adopted. All of the children that we took were uh, newborns, so Elaine spent most of her 22 years with midnight feedings, diaper changes, car seats, doctor visits, not to mention parental visits at the DCF office. And it's... Our story's not unique. Since we've been here at Community Covenant, we've had a chance to meet Pat and Paul Lingell, who have a very, very similar story to ours, 20 years in foster parenting, and they also have adopted four children. The difference, however, is the Langells have 13 grandchildren, while today Elaine and I have one and about a half. And frankly, uh, we may never catch the Langells on that one. But we've had opportunities to sit and to share some stories with the Langells, and we've shared stories of how we've both seen God moving and providing throughout the years. And I'm going to just share just uh, one of those stories with you. So we had already adopted two of our children, our son Curtis, who's the drummer here at the church, and also our daughter Leah. Leah had some medical challenges when she was younger, so we started to toy with the idea of, of retiring from, from foster parenting. But, but before we did, we, we, we wanted to an, adopt an African-American child so that Curtis wouldn't be the only child of color in our family. So we asked DCF to begin the search for us. And as time went by, and more time went by, no call from DCF. And we started to ask ourselves, why is it so hard to find a child that needs a home? From all of the stories we heard, 
there was this, always a surplus of children that needed a home. So more time went by, and more time went by. And then one day, DCF called us and asked if we would take a placement for an 18-month-old. And the reason that they had called us was because it was Curtis's brother. So in the conversation with the worker, they told Elaine that they were also looking for a home for the newborn uh, baby girl that had just been born that was going to be released from the hospital in a couple of days. So Elaine said, well, can she come here? And so it was. God had shut door after door in our efforts to adopt another child, which then also delayed our plans to resign from foster parenting. But God had a purpose that these were the children that were to be placed with us. We ended up fostering Malachi and Andrea, and in time, we adopted them into our family. You know, God's hand is not always so obvious, but this was one of those times when his fingerprint was clear and it was confirming for us. When we look in the rearview mirror of our lives, it becomes clearer to see how God has arranged events for his own purposes. The dream that Elaine and I had to take children from the inner city never materialized the way that we had envisioned, but God did give us the desire of our heart. And in time, it became very clear to us that God had not only put the desire in our heart, but had also given us the resources, the skills, the home to serve, us this, to serve him this way. God put us into these very circumstances for this purpose. And all of this jumped out to me back in 1997, when I was doing a study in the book of Esther. The message was so clear to me that I, I can still remember where I was when it struck me. We even had a plaque made that hangs in our home that says, and who knows, but that you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. And there's other stories. I mentioned that one of our children had a, a medical condition, and it's been amazing for Elaine and I to see how that situation, has, uh, that struggle, that situation, has created an avenue that now blesses so many other children outside of our home. But that's a story, you know, for another day. But this is our story, our life, and there's nothing special about us. As Mordecai said to Esther, if you don't do this, someone else would. But God has given to each and every one of us the opportunity to serve him in the oikos that he's placed us. He could have selected anyone else, but for each and every one of us, he's chosen us and given us the privilege to serve him in the very places that he's put us. Now, when Greg originally asked me to share this story, I, 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 I was a bit hesitant. It's, it's a little bit awkward to talk about yourself, but beyond the awkwardness, there was always one aspect of serving the Lord that I've always wrestled with. And so, as Paul said to the Second, in 2 Second Corinthians, if I have to boast, then let me boast about my weaknesses. The question that always lingers with me is, how well did I do, or how well do I do even today, at directing the glory to God in my service? When Elaine and I checked the religion box on the DCF questionnaire years ago, 
How well have we done in those 22 years in letting others know that our motivation to do this was Christ? In my day-to-day -day life, whether with family, friends, work, sports program, is the religion checkbox obvious to those in my oikos? When we did foster parenting, people would say to us, oh, that's so nice what you guys do. You certainly have a place in heaven. And I would always say to Elaine, that's very nice of them to say, but very, very bad theology. But what I ask myself is, how well have I done at redirecting those pats on the back towards the God that I serve? In a balanced, in a healthy way, is it obvious that I'm a Christian and that I serve God in my love for others? And I wonder how many opportunities have there been where having a conversation of, about Christ was right there, just ripe for the picking, and I didn't take the opportunity. How well do we do at being Christ-like in our circle of relationships? How well do we do at allowing God to use us to bring others to himself? When I look at my own circle of relations, I want to do better at this. And I would imagine that the same is for you. You want to be better at this. So when I started to think about this message, I thought back on all of my experiences that I've learned through the years, both the good, the bad, and as to how I could be better in being Christ-like and more intentional about sharing the gospel. So I started to put some thoughts together on this a couple of weeks ago. But as our world has just changed so dramatically since then, I started to feel more and more drawn towards just one particular point that I was planning to make. And so I decided instead to take that point and then expand on it just a little bit more fully than I otherwise would have. And that is, because God is our Father, we can embody and also exude a peace, a very real, genuine calmness, even in the midst of difficult challenges. When we truly rest in Him, not only are our lives blessed, but we can become a blessing to those around us. People will see this in us and maybe even be drawn to it. I, I think about Paul in Acts 27 while he was a prisoner in the midst of a shipwreck. He reassured his captives and all of those on the ship. And then it says he took some bread and he gave thanks to God. And the Bible says they were all encouraged. And then again in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas were prisoners chained in a Philippian jail, rather than cowering in fear for their lives, instead they were praying and singing hymns to God. And it says that the other prisoners were listening to them. In both of these stories, Paul's peace in the midst of very real difficulties was on display for those around him to see. And the same applies for us as followers of Christ. In this new world that we find ourselves in, in the upcoming days and weeks, we'll have the opportunity to let those around us see that inner peace, that inner assurance that's ours if we'll only embrace it. And what's the source of that assurance? 
When Jesus said in Luke 12, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? But seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be given to you as well. Why, as Christians, why should we have confidence and assurance in this promise and the others? What is it that grounds these promises, that we should believe in them and even stake our lives on these? It's the very same thing that caused the first century Christians to believe. When the religious leaders challenged Jesus and they said, give us a sign, he said to them, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Do you see what was happening here? Jesus was asked to give a sign to verify that he was the Son of God, to verify that he was the Messiah from God. And for the sign, he pointed to his resurrection. The hinge pin of Christianity, the hinge pin, the hinge pin of our faith in Jesus is the resurrection from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15. Excuse me again. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul wrote, in verse 14, he said, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And in 17, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. But in verse 20, he says, But Christ has been raised from the dead. You see, Paul was a realist. His faith, his trust in God for his life and the world to come hinged solely on whether Jesus had been risen from the dead. He did this because earlier in the chapter, he reports that Jesus actually appeared to him after his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For what I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for, for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And some Christians are not even aware of this that Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time after his resurrection. And Paul writes this almost as if to say, go and ask them. Some of, these, some of these people are still alive. Go out and ask them. He continues. Then he appeared to James, and then to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me. At the very core, might I say, even at the very foundation of Paul's faith was Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Throughout the book of Acts, the apostles went out and preached Jesus, always saying, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. As believers in Christ, our faith is just not some kind of religious optimism. 
or as Francis Schaeffer used to say, a leap of faith is not a leap into non-reason. Our faith is rooted in the historical event of Jesus' resurrection to, from the dead as attested to by those who are his eyewitnesses. Why can we trust that God will provide for us, that he'll watch over us, that all things work together for good? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. And when we grab hold of this truth, it'll transform us from the inside out. Others will be drawn to the peace and the assurance that we have, even in the midst of our storms. It seems as if some difficult days will be with us in the upcoming weeks. God allows events for his own purposes. And many times those purposes are just far beyond our human understanding. What we saw in Esther's life is the same uh, for us today. He calls us to be his witnesses in our oikos, in our own little circle of relations. And there's many ways that we can be effective in reaching some for Christ, but one of those is by letting this peace of God to control us and then, let, then letting that peace be seen by others. So I encourage us today to make a conscious decision to put our trust in him who raised Jesus from the dead and ask that God would glorify himself through us. I close with the words from, of Jesus from John 16. He said, these things, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world.